Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't begin this morning with a big thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to each and every one of you. Hundreds of you who participated last week in our in our spring share. Um, You're going to hear us talk more about it in the coming days and weeks. Um, You're going to hear thank you every hour of the day. Um, It was in a year when the word unprecedented is uh, grossly overused. Um, For us, it was unprecedented. Uh, nearly half a million dollars raised. Um, I mean, very, very nearly half a million dollars raised. And that enables us to not only do all of the things that are set forth uh, before us that are already planned uh, in the remainder of this fiscal year for us, but uh, it enables us to say yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, to the things that we anticipate God inviting us to do in the very near future. Uh, And so begin praying with us about the expansion of this radio ministry to the city of Des Moines. That's right. Uh, if you didn't hear it last week, you're hearing it now. We are headed to Des Moines uh, before the end of uh, 2021, hopefully by the end of the summer, but certainly in the fall. And so let's begin praying now for uh, people in that uh, great city uh, and and actually in that metro area um, to be reached by the gospel through this, uh, not only radio ministry, but through this ministry that is global at MyFaithRadio.com and via the Faith Radio app. So thank you and thank you in advance um, for partnering with us in the future as God continues to invite us to expand the reach of this gospel ministry. It's just uh, so very exciting. So this has been a week and a weekend marked by um, the regular rhythms of life. And that means that we uh, cover stories that are punctuated by death. And so we will deal um, more in the coming days with the unfolding story in Brooklyn Center in Minneapolis. Um, we have few few details about that right now, but in the midst of the Derek Chauvin trial, um, the the death of a black man um, in an officer-involved shooting has caused probably with you know it's not unexpected um, riots and and all kinds of things following it. Certainly, uh, there will be uh, protests today. So let's be praying for. The people in Brooklyn Center, the people in Minneapolis, the people across the country um, who are having these very necessary conversations about the intersection of community policing and race and um, the challenges that we face as a nation. It's going to, you know, it. the conversations are robust and they are necessarily um, robust. And so let's be people who participate in those um, quick to listen, slow to speak and and inviting God Um, to bring justice. And yet I know that as soon as I use that word, it's a word that is um, individually defined in these days. And so maybe we start by asking people, um, how do you see that word? What do you mean when you use it? Okay. um, Another major, um, you know, I guess every death is major. Prince Philip died. Um, My guess is you heard that at some point over the weekend. Buckingham Palace announced it on Friday. Prince Philip was 99 years old. The prince or the queen was described um, as being left with a huge void in her life after his death, um, certainly. 
certainly we would understand that. Uh, there is a funeral planned for this coming Saturday in Windsor Castle, uh, but the ceremony will be limited to 30 people and there will be no public processions or viewings. And people are even be, being discouraged from, you know, sort of gathering in mourning. And I think that's very, very sad. People want to publicly mourn public figures and um, and people need opportunities to grieve and grieve together. So let's be praying for that as well. Now, for those of you, let me just briefly comment on this. For those of you who assume that Philip was referred to as a prince because he was married to the queen, um, that's not in fact true. Philip was born into royalty on the Greek island of Corfu. He was the only son of Prince Andrew of Greece and Princess Alice of Battenberg. His uncle uh, was King Constantine I of Greece, who was forced to abdicate the throne in 1922. And so uh, Philip was just 18 months old at the time, and his family was forced to flee ahead of a riotous, murderous mob. And so um, Prince Philip was a refugee. He was a political refugee. He sought asylum outside of his home nation of Greece. He was smuggled out of the country in an orange crate. Prince Philip was a refugee. Philip uh, and the future Queen Elizabeth II first met when they were kids. They met at a cousin's wedding in 1934. They met again at Dartmouth Royal Naval College, and they began corresponding while he served overseas in the Mediterranean and Pacific fronts during World War II. Now, they were married when she turned 21, and he served his adopted country for more than 75 years. And at the time of his death, um, Prince Philip uh, had had served more than 800 charitable organizations in Great Britain and undertaken tens of thousands of speeches and and, and engagements on behalf of um, uh, of his adopted land. Now, there is a, you're going to hear a story, uh, if you follow it on CNN today, that he was regarded at, by at least one tribe as a god. So I'm not going to unpack that right now, but that was that's a storyline um, that we as Christians could follow as well. Uh, this I will just remind you of now. We're, we are royalty. You are a son or a daughter of God adopted into the family of faith through Jesus Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. We have a king, and we represent a kingdom. Never forget that. Never forget that as you approach the issues and the conversations of this day. All right, I'm excited to have uh, a, a Dave uh, Burring back from Lion Share. We talked about his most excellent book, The Great Opportunity, but he's back today to talk about a recent podcast that I really found helpful. It's it's called You Are Are You Offended? And so we're going to talk about offense and taking offense and being people who uh, do better than that. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dave Burring is back from Lion Share. You can find what we're talking about today at lionshare.org. Dave, welcome back. Hey, how are you this morning? Have I already offended you? You have not. <laughs> Sometimes people get offended when their name is mispronounced. So yeah, uh, hey, it's it's Burring. It rhymes with curing. I'm memorizing it now. So so try it like this. So curing Buring. Curing, bearing. There Beering. you go. There you go. Beering. So, um, you 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 might imagine the Le, Le Burge gets mispronounced as well. And so oh, you I, and I, yeah. 
you and I have frequent opportunity to make the decision about whether or not we are going to be offended, which leads us to a great conversation um, about a podcast episode that I listened to. And now I have discovered that if you go to lionshare.org, there are also these podcast episode notes that are posted, which are really most helpful for a person who wants to have a conversation about a podcast. Yeah, that's right. Super nice. So let's talk about um, being offended. Seems like everyone is offended these days. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of feels like, Carmen, when I was a kid, how I used to collect baseball cards. People are collecting offenses, not only their own, but others. And so I think we're we're living in a in a time where, you know, there's been an attack on the heart, if I could say it that way, from deep disappointments, hope deferred, as the Bible says, makes the heart sick, injustice, betrayal, you know, gut-wrenching relational situations, and it, it all leads to opportunities to pick up offenses. And I I find it uh, all over the place, neighborhoods, in the church, uh, in the workplace, all over. So as Christians, um, are there things about which we are rightly offended? And then are there things about which we are taking offense and we should actually be people who try to live unoffended? Yeah, that's a great question. I I actually learned this several years ago, uh, just in digging in the scriptures and then having some chats with people wiser than me. And, you know, I don't know that we can say as followers of Jesus that we're supposed to be offended. Like, in other words, when we so, so I've had several trips into Nepal dealing with human trafficking. And here's the thing I've noticed when you get offended, it impacts your heart. It means it impacts your attitude. Matter of fact, you know, in the scriptures, the word, the Greek word is scandalon, which obviously we get the word scandal from. And so when we get offended, we've been scandalized. And then, you know, have you ever seen a person who can say, oh, yeah, I got grace to carry offense? It's just not there. You know, veins are bulging. We're upset. So I, I here's the, the lesson learned. You can never birth something out of offense and expect God's grace and anointing to be on it. So in other words, human trafficking world, horrible. We should be angry about it. But what that means is I take that anger and I bring it before the Lord and I give it back to him. I say, now, Lord, I'm not going to operate and run out of this. I'm going to operate out of obedience to you. What do you want me to do about it? It keeps my heart clean and it gets the kingdom advanced. So before we talk about sort of how to live unoffended, because I think that's that's where we're headed, how, how do I resist taking the bait? Um, I mean, that's one of the things you say in here. Don't pick up an offense, yours or others. But, man, that's hard sometimes. It's really hard. And, you know, it, again, let's go back to that word scandal on. And literally it means um, like the trigger of a trap where bait is attached. And so... I think the key is, is we've got to be able to learn to see it coming. And because when we don't, we end up, it gets on us, if I could say that way, and gets, then it gets in us. And we need to learn to see it coming. And I think uh, w- one of the things that we have to do is just pay attention to what's going on around us. Like, for example, I, I spoke on this in one setting and I had a hairdresser afterwards come up to me and say, like, how am I supposed to deal with this, Dave? I got these ladies sitting in my chair and before I know it, there's gossip going on. And then they move into what they're offended about and I'm hearing it for the next half hour. So we said, well, let's talk about this. So we we literally had a conversation about this. And here was her game plan when, when she was done. She said, I'm going to have some pictures of my last trip or my grandkids or something near my chair 
so that I can hand to the person say, hey, here's our last trip to such and such place. And, and she said, I'm going to start setting the tone better. And then she said, when someone starts railing, I can't believe that John was fired. You know, he's been there 38 years. Bobby was there six years and they let John go. Why is it? And they and she said, I'm just going to let him go for about 20 seconds while I'm recognizing. Ah, this is a fence and it's trying to get on me. And she said, I'm going to get right in front of them, look them in the eyes take their hands and say, well, let's pray for John right now. Not invite them to do so, but just do it. And she said, I think when I do that, I don't know that they're going to be bringing that kind of stuff up anymore. So I think it was a good strategy for a hairdresser. Yeah. And, and the reverse is true as well. All right. So I'm the person sitting in the chair and the conversations going on around me or the conversations that maybe my hairdresser brings forth are not edifying. Um, and, I need to do the same thing. So I need to take I need to take that same counsel in reverse. You know, if I'm the person sitting in a salon and the conversation around me is uh, is about other people and it is about um, offense and things that, frankly, as a Christian, I find offensive. Like this is, I think, part of my challenge, Dave. I'm actually offended when other people are talking about the way they're offended because what they are talking about are other people. So this is, I don't know, and it's, it's a complicated challenge. we got to take a very, very brief break. I'm talking with Dave Buring. Did I get it right that time? Bingo. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep saying it. I'm talking with Dave Buring from Lionshare. You can find what we're talking about at lionshare.org. Are you offended? Um, and, and what is that sort of, what is that resulting um, in in your life? If living, living as a person who is constantly offended can't be a joy. And so uh, how do we live as those who are unoffended. What would that look like? What would that life look like? That's what we're going to talk about next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, continuing my conversation with Dave Buring from Lionshare. You can find him at lionshare.org. We're talking about a recent podcast, Are You Offended?, um, if you want some wisdom in your life, um, Dave has some that he's uh, dispensing there via that podcast. And so let me just encourage <laughs> you to check it out. Um, you talk about the result of offense being anger, and um, that's no way to live. And so let's talk a little bit about aiming to be unoffended and what that life mm-hmm. looks like. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Anger is not the way to live. And that leads to bitterness and resentment. And it's it's uh, it's a difficult life. And here's the thing, I think, Carmen, that we have to pay attention to. Uh, I'm hoping that is the listeners are hearing this today, that from this day forward, they will begin to recognize when offense is coming. For example, like that hairdresser, it's like sometimes it takes us that 15 to 30 seconds to recognize what's going on. And we can't forget the spiritual realm in which we live, that the we have to realize the enemy of our soul wants us carrying offenses because it hinders us from being clean of heart. It hinders us from good relationships. It helps us from hearing God and advancing his kingdom. But sometimes we've been in environments where we're just used to collecting them because we've been hurt. And so it's easy to collect them and find something to rage at. And yet, listen to this, Romans 16, 17. This is Paul writing. I urge you, strong word there, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles, and that word obstacles is scandal on, in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Listen to what it says. Keep away from them. 
In other words, Paul is saying, look, just be aware. These are not the kind of people you want to usually hang with because this stuff gets on you. And I think the first step of getting free from this, if we're stuck in it, it honestly, it's just repentance. And it's coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I repent for carrying all this stuff, for letting anger and bitterness take over. And Jesus loves to come and forgive us. First John 1, 9 reminds us we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and I would go as far, uh, Carmen, in saying that I think collecting offenses is actually moving into sin again because we have we never have the grace to carry it okay there's something there's i'm trying to remember like something that it sticks doesn't stick to me but it's stuck on you or something like that there's some like little Mm. saying that when we were kids Mm. i can't even remember Mm. it but i will try to google it and find it but this is the stickiness part of it right it like gets on you and then it gets in you and then it takes root and then it produces rotten fruit yeah and then you start scandalizing others. So, so again, remember the word scandal, scandal on there is, is bait. It's like going fishing. It's to getting the bait. And, and it's like the enemy of our soul wants to bait us into taking it, to biting on it. And the difficult thing about this is, is you never get scandalized and then it remains in you alone. It starts spewing out of you. And so instead mm. of walking in the spirit, we're walking in the flesh. And that flesh is just spewing this stuff on others. Well, did you hear about John? Oh, yeah, I heard about John. How can you? Can you believe it? And before we know it, we're ratcheted up to this whole other level. And I think the enemy of our soul is just standing in the background with that slow clap sound, knowing that he's caused division. Well, and I would say that, in my, at least in my life, 90 some percent of the time, the did, the do you, did you hear about John is not even somebody that either of us knows personally. Exactly. Exactly. So we it's, don't. So the thing we have to remember. It's some other is, thing. Yeah, we don't even know the whole story. Yeah. No. Exactly. All right. Um, I love this. I love this conversation. This is so incredibly helpful. Um, let me encourage you guys to to go to lionshare.org. Check out season three, episode one of the podcast. And what you're looking for is a podcast called Are You Offended? And then in there, if you click on the, um, there's these downloadable notes. And that has all the scripture references listed um, right there. And it helps you kind of walk through this conversation, particularly if you're thinking to yourself, I have somebody in my life that I need to walk through this conversation with. Um, these downloadable notes will be really, really helpful as you're doing that. I will post them on my all my social medias as well. Dave Buring, thank you um, for joining us today. We hope you'll come back and do it again. It'd be my privilege. Have a great day, Carmen. It's, it's very edifying um, to have you with us. All right. Thank you so much, uh, friends. We've got to take a, a, another brief break, and then we'll be right back. All right. I uh, want to just bring you up to speed on what's going on um, in, in Brooklyn Center. Um, thank you for those of you who have been uh, who've been highlighting events there and asking for people to be to be praying. Um, There is an individual who is dead in a police-involved shooting in Brooklyn Center. Uh, The National Guard was then called out as people in the community responded. Tear gas was deployed to clear the protesters. There are um, businesses in the community that have been looted. 
Um, and so we want to uh, we want to be lifting up the situation there. This is obviously happening in the midst of or, you know, uh, at the same time as the Derek Chauvin trial. Uh, the prosecution is anticipated to uh, conclude their presentation, their arguments, and then we will move to the defense phase of that trial. I, I would anticipate that during the defense phase, people will be very agitated um, about um, conversations that will be had in the courtroom, and then obviously those will spill over into uh, into our public discourse. Let's be praying today for these and other situations in our own communities here in the nation and around the world. Always encourage us uh, to be praying the news, so let's do so right now. Holy God, we come before you acknowledging um, your sovereignty over all things, including this day. We also acknowledge that the issues of this day are are the issues of every day. And so, Father, we, um, we set ourselves before you and we ask that you would prepare us, that you would anoint us to serve as authentic representations of the gospel in a world that desperately needs it. Let us be light in darkness. Let us be people who, who listen well and speak truth with love. Let us, Father, indeed be ambassadors of you, our King, and your kingdom in this day amidst all of the brokenness around us. Father, our hearts go out to those who are grieving today, for those who are um, feeling defeated or anxious, for those who feel robbed of their dignity. Father, bless us um, to bless others in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, And let me just say before we go to break, um, you guys bless me so much. Um, Every single, uh, well, not every, not every comment on our uh, on our text line, but several of you, several of you, uh, sent in to help me out today. I'm rubber, your glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. So thank you to each and every one of you who are, um, yes, are on top of things when I am searching for them. You are most helpful. Uh, we got, uh, all right, we got to take a break, um, for the news and then we'll be right back. Kids make mistakes, sometimes really stupid mistakes. But when your teen messes up, do you come unglued? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I find that too many Christian families have a love affair with perfectionism. And that means when a teen does something wrong, it either ignites an ugly altercation or worse yet, it gets silently swept under the carpet like nothing happened. When mistakes are made, How about saying something like this? Son, you don't have to perform for me. Then say this. Son, I won't leave you when you do something wrong. They're some of the most healing words spoken in families today. Next time your kid goofs up, try practicing grace. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Bennett from the Center for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University, um, just home from some kind of, you know, wacky kid event. So he's as tired as I am this morning. Daniel, good morning. Good morning. It was uh, it was a, it was an experience. Where, where were you? What did you do? And uh, and why did you do it? 
Well, I'll plug it. We were at uh, New Life Ranch Frontier Cove in Adair, Oklahoma. Uh, it's an Old West themed uh, camp for for kids second to sixth grade, and uh, oh my they bring gosh, out. Gosh, it sounds uh, so fun! Oh, man. oh it, it was something. Uh, it was, you know, honestly, it was pretty laid back. But my son is pretty high energy, and so we uh, he had me going the whole the whole day, couple days. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for getting up early and joining us. Let's um. Let's jump into some uh, some numbers. First, there was the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, and then there was the nearly $3 trillion infrastructure spending bill, which we're going to get, we've had a first look at, but uh, that's unfolding. And now we have the 2022 proposed federal budget. What do we need to know and what can we expect? Yeah, so, I mean, it is a, a sharp contrast from uh, the, the Trump administration, obviously, uh, Biden is looking, I think, in many ways at public opinion on certain issues and saying, OK, even though this is, uh, as some conservatives decry it, a liberal wish list, a lot of these policies are generally popular among uh, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, you know, maybe in general, folks are opposed to government spending, but when it comes to specific programs, maybe they're less hostile towards it. And I think the COVID relief package is a great example of that. Uh, public opinion on that is sky high. And he's seeing that almost as, a, as an invitation to do more uh, and do more faster. So uh, I don't think we're going to see any foot off the gas in the months ahead. And then let's talk about the this commission, the Supreme Court commission. Um, so folks will probably remember that in the months leading up to the Democratic primary in 2020, Joe Biden was actually one of a handful of candidates who opposed, quote unquote, mm-hmm. packing the Supreme Court. Um, he said he was against the idea, but now he seems to maybe be for the idea or maybe that maybe the commission is a way of him not having to move forward with an idea that maybe he doesn't like, but he's getting pressed to examine. What do you think's going on? I think it's probably more the latter. Uh, you know, Biden, for the most part, and he's evolved a little bit on the filibuster, for example, you know, it has been described as an institutionalist in terms of his time in the Senate. Uh, But I think this commission is a way to placate his more liberal progressive base who would love to add seats to the Supreme Court for the perceived injustice of, you know, confirming Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and certainly uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, But it's also a way for him to to say basically, well, you know how these government commissions work, right? They'll they'll study it for a few months, make recommendation and then nothing happens. So uh, I I think it's a way of him trying to have it both ways to say, okay, look, you know, we 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 studied it, uh, but ultimately uh, maybe it's not feasible or maybe there's disagreement. So let's just move on. And in the spirit of um, being sure that people know where this came from, let me just remind our listeners that prior to the election, uh, Mm -hmm. the now President Biden actually said, if elected, I will put together a national bipartisan commission of constitutional scholars, Democrats, Republicans, liberal, conservative. I will ask them to, over 180 days, come back to me with recommendations as to how to reform the court system because it's getting out of whack the way in which this is being handled. So um, what the president did on Friday in signing this executive order is actually fulfilling, you know, something that he said he would do. So um, so I don't think that anybody should necessarily be like crazy surprised by it. Um, Let's talk a little. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, no, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, I think I think the names on the list are pretty, pretty solid. You know, as a political scientist, I was hoping there'd be more political scientists on the list. But one of the names Mm -hmm. is Keith Whittington at Princeton, who's a conservative guy, really sharp, uh, really excellent scholar of the court. So uh, it's not some activist commission put together. But you're right. It's something you talked about before. Well, and not everything that a commission uh, even recommends or decides or observes ever 
takes root in, in any sort of actual policy. So, um, so yeah. All right. It seems very – for a person whose background is Presbyterianism, like everything is done by committee anyway. So, yeah. But this is a commission, <laughs> yes. not a committee, which is also a word to pay attention to. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Let's. Um, so you and I both read this uh, this Axios piece on, you know, I'm going to use the term realignment. Um, I think that I would love for people to understand from your perspective sort of what is happening nationally in terms of what feel what feels like the shifting sands of both the Democrat and Republican parties. Yeah, so uh, throughout American political history, we've had several uh, what scholars refer to as uh, party systems, where the parties uh, dominating uh, government in those eras are relatively stable. They're consistent across issues. Uh, their voter base is pretty stable. Um, we've been in the same party system roughly since the end of the 1960s with the uh, transition of the New Deal coalition to what we see today with uh, Southern Democrats becoming more Southern conservative Republicans uh, in many respects. Um, but yeah, we are starting to see that. And it's hard to observe uh, realignment as it's happening. You almost have to always go back and look at it in retrospect. And uh, certainly on the Republican side, with President Trump's emphasis on more protectionism when it comes to trade, more of an economic populist message combined with conservative rhetoric on nationalism and, and uh, opposition to certain forms of immigration, uh, th that's relatively new for Republicans. And then on the Democratic side, you see more of a swing uh, against this social conservative element within the party to the point now where if you identify as social conservative or pro-life, uh, you really have a hard time being engaged in the party as folks like Justin Gibney and Michael Ware uh, can tell you. So uh, we're, we're not seeing any signs of the parties uh, moderating on a lot of these key issues. They're becoming more polarized and they're being rewarded by that uh, or for that through primary elections. And uh, they don't really see any reason to shift strategies. So when we talk about, um, you know, kind of the age in which we live and we talk about this massive polarization, I, you know, helping people sort of see themselves and their own social location seems very, very important to me. And there's a lot of people listening right now, um, Daniel, who live in parts of the country that are um, very agrarian um, or they live in small cities or they are, um, you know, they are not in these metroplexes where that are driving many of the conversations um, and many of the political agendas, particularly on the left. And so um, maybe just talk with us about um I mean, there's a very dynamic thing happening in the United States of America, and it's happening very, very fast. And it's not just that we have moved from an agrarian age to an industrial age through an information age to now a fully digital age. Like, that's part of it. But we've also at the same time gone through, a, you know, a pretty seismic social and economic transformation. So I, mm. I, I just maybe just speak to people about yeah. – um, where we are in, in the in the arc. Yeah, I, mean, I think you summarized it uh, very well. Uh, and, you know, political scientists and other social scientists have looked at this concept of social sorting, where we are not only sorting ourselves based on our political affiliations and only spending time with people who agree with us politically, but so much of our identity is, is becoming more and more uh, homogenous, right? So if you are if basically where you live can tell people a lot about who you are and what your values are, not perfectly, but uh, it gives people a really good cue. 
And those divisions are becoming even more and more stark. I, I, th I think folks who focus on division in American politics are right to look at the geographic divide, the rural-urban split. Uh, those values, those priorities are just so, so different. Uh, you know, there's been some books recently about this phenomenon, uh, you know, most famously probably J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, which was, you know, praised and criticized by folks. Uh, but more, more recently, Grace Olmstead wrote a book called Uprooted about her time uh, in rural Idaho and uh, how people are, you know, maybe leaving for college and work, but then also deciding to come back and seeing the appeal of of going home to smaller communities and investing and putting down roots. So we are definitely in a dynamic in a, a very challenging age. Uh, but with the with the digital age, like you said, maybe there's more opportunities than ever for people to live not just in big cities, but to live in rural communities and still uh, work in positions that allow them to provide for their families in a comfortable way and be plugged into the larger scene. Okay, um, Paul Perot's listening right now, so let's get Grace Olmstead because that looks like a really good book, Uprooted, Recovering oh, yeah. the Legacy oh, yeah. of the Places We've Left Behind. All right, so that yeah. just popped March 16th. So let's um, yeah. let's be sure. we. That sounds really good. Let's circle back around to that. Hey, um, I'm talking with Daniel Bennett. He and I got to take a very brief break. He's from the Center for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University, and we'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Daniel Bennett. You can find him at the Center for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University. Um, best place, Daniel, for people to find you in the digital world? I think uh, still Twitter. Uh, that's probably where I am the most. Uh, Daniel R. Ben, B-E-N-N. -N. All right. Daniel R. Ben, B-E-N-N -N on Twitter. That's uh, for those of you not in the Twitter sphere. I am at Carmen LaBerge. Um, all right, so um, let's talk about what's going on between um, LGBTQ activists and the Department of Education and Christian colleges. This this sort of intersecting conversation is big, um, particularly for Christian colleges like, you know, frankly, where we both serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there, there's a uh, lawsuit that was just filed uh, by a group called the Religious Exemption Accountability Project. And uh, they're representing its class action lawsuit, representing nearly three dozen current and uh, former students who've attended Christian colleges, not exclusively CCCU, the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, but they're all Christian colleges in some way. And the lawsuit alleges discrimination based on the student's sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, some of it might just be referred to as dignitary harm. They were harassed. They were essentially made to feel less than some of the, some of the allegations are more troubling, uh, sexual assault, uh, not reported through title nine because a lot of these colleges have exemptions from title nine for religious reasons. Uh, so the, 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 the lawsuit aims to essentially end that exemption from title nine's, uh, governance of, of educational institutions, which would have far reaching implications in terms of not only, uh, discipline for students, but also for hiring and firing employees, uh, which I think has always been the the real issue on the horizon after the recent Supreme Court decisions. So I'm not super confident or or uh, I guess concerned maybe as an employee that the, this lawsuit is going to have a a real shot at changing the status quo. But I wrote today that this is something that's coming. Right, these lawsuits are not going to be a, just a one off. These are things that are going to be happening for the next several years, and this might be the first one to pop up. So let's just, can I ask you a question? And if you don't know the answer, it's totally okay. Um, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, you know, when when a, the lawsuit talks about 
schools that take federal money. Are they, I mean, does that like go all the way down to accepts federal student aid? That's exactly what it's taught. That's all it's talking about. Okay, so that's challenging. I mean, that's really, really challenging because that's most schools. Oh, yeah. No, I think there's only a handful of, you know, hypothetically, let's say the IRS, like they did back in the 1980s with Bob Jones University, said, uh, well, you know, your ban on interracial dating uh, no longer qualifies you for your tax exempt status. And so maybe we'll also decide to strip you of federal student uh, uh, federal funding for uh, student education. Um, If that were to happen in in Christian schools uh, on the basis of their positions on, say, gender and sexuality, uh, you know, there might be a marriage or marriage, anything like that. Yeah. For hiring and firing employees. Um, you know, there'd maybe be one or two colleges in the CCCU, uh, that would survive that. I'm thinking like Wheaton college would maybe be okay. Just given the name recognition. Uh, but the vast majority of Christian schools rely heavily as do all private schools, frankly, rely on federal student loans and Pell grants and things like that. So it's not like the schools are getting direct payments from the government. The students are choosing to use their federal uh, money at these private Christian institutions. And if that were to be able if that were no longer possible, uh, you know, you'd have to have a whole community of schools like Hillsdale College in Michigan or Grove City College in Pennsylvania that have consciously chose not to accept federal student loans. Um, But those are the exceptions uh, far from the rule. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, I think this is this is one of those stories we got to keep up on our way up on the radar. Um, What else? uh, What else do you want to talk about today? I liked your piece um, at Daniel Bennett on your Substack. Um, I liked your piece on transactional versus transformational political engagement. Um, Want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I wrote this last year, actually, and I, I've been re-upping some things. Oh, I'm uh, kind of slow. Sometimes I'm no, slow. No, 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 no. But, I, but I, I wrote it last year, but recently shared it with Substack. So, you know, you're right on the money. Um, and I wrote it after Al Mohler's uh, announcement back in uh, spring of 2020 that he would be uh, voting for Donald Trump in, in 2020. And uh, this is after, of course, uh, in 2016 when he said, I, I will never do that, right? He would describe himself as never Trump at that particular moment. And so it got me thinking about the virtue and the and the value of, you know, transactional politics is something we see a lot in our society. And I certainly don't begrudge uh, Christians who made that calculation to say, look, you know, Donald Trump was a lot more, uh, I guess, faithful to his word than a lot of folks may have thought he would have been when it comes to appointing conservative judges and, and writing regulations that were beneficial to Christians and, and that understanding of religious freedom. Um, but there's also maybe a danger or the allure of transactional politics to say, well, you know, you know, if we could get only four more years, that'll really shore us up for the future. Or, yeah, maybe just a couple more judges. That'll be really helpful. Um, and so I also don't think it's a problem for Christians to take the longer view and say, you know, maybe we should aim for something a little bit higher uh, and something a little bit more, uh, I guess, faithful to maybe the perception of our Christian witness, um, especially from the perspective of a skeptical world. Uh, so, uh, you know, I personally lean towards the the latter, um, but I certainly, you know, know many faithful Christians who voted for Donald Trump in 2020. And, you know, they did so on the reason of, I think he's going to be better for me. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, uh, but I think you could have multiple perspectives as Christians. I think this conversation about transactional versus transformational, this is a conversation that Christians should sit with in a number of areas of life. Um, This is a conversation we should sit with in terms of our support as donors for ministries. Am I just giving 
because I'm getting? Or am I giving because I believe this is a gospel-advancing ministry, even in places and spaces from which I'm not going to get anything back for myself? Like, there's a, there's a, um, there's a transformational conversation to have in terms of our investment in gospel ministries versus a transactional relationship that we have come to, we've grown into over at least a generation in terms of Christian ministries. I think the other place where I see and have experienced people um, behave, Christians behaving in a way that is transactional is with church membership. If you, if you have, if you go to a church and you're not getting what you want and therefore you go church shopping, you are a transactional church person. And that's different than investing in a community of believers because of the gifts God has given to you that you bring to the church where the body becomes better because you're there. Um, And when you extract yourself from that particular body, those gifts leave with you. And so I just, there's so many places and spaces where I think we have become consumer Christians in, we've, we've become consumerist Christians in our politics and we expect that to be transactional. We've become consumerist Christians in our mission giving and our mission support. And I view that as a really negative thing. And then we've also become very consumeristic in our in our church going. And that's just not biblical Christianity. I mean, for lack of a just way of throwing it out there. So I appreciated the piece. Yeah. It's provocative. It's helpful. It's not the only area. Politics is not the only area where Christians have become um, transactional instead of uh, transformational in their engagement. Yeah, well said. I think that's that's exactly right. And I think you, I think you may be onto something. Obviously, with church membership, uh, you know, especially families with with uh, children. Uh, you know, we've certainly felt this, and we know a lot of people who have felt this. You know, what kind of children's ministry is at the pro is at the church? Not necessarily because. Uh, it's, uh, you know, going to, you know, serve the kids in terms of, uh, you know, teaching them in the gospel, although it might, but like, is it the shiny new thing? Is it something we can, you know, take advantage of? Uh, But you're right. I think that's something to be, keep an eye on. All right. I hear the music. We got to go. Daniel Bennett from the Center (laughs) for Faith and Flourishing at John Brown University. Love talking with you. I hope you'll come back. Hey, thanks a lot. We'll be right back. Okay, thank you for those of you texting in during this hour. The text line is always open during the show. Great way to communicate with me, 877-933-2484. And let me just say um, to Robert, yes, I know you can't get emojis on your flip phone. That's totally why I sent you one. Okay, I'm up to speed on these things. Hey, uh, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Really excited about the conversations that are coming up, so don't miss it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.